0: All right, we'll dismiss our school age kids. They can head to the back with exuberance, right? And the rest of us with exuberance. Let me invite you to open your Bibles if you brought one to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two is where we'll be today. Someone asked me earlier, uh, "You're doing graduates and uh, celebrating moms on the same day. Aren't the moms going to be overshadowed?" And I said, uh, "Well, you know, we're not going to parade all the moms in front. But uh, if it's graduates versus moms, moms win, um, and graduates until you can grow a human inside of you, and that be the easiest part of the job, um, then then you can win." I uh, this is this the letter of First Peter. As a lot of the letters, when you spend 20, 30 hours a week in it, it's just, it becomes so encouraging to my heart. And I feel like there's so much that the Lord, through his word, wants to share with you today. So prepare your hearts. Would you ask the Lord just to speak to you? It would be just a tragedy for us to come and celebrate the seniors and honor the moms and miss Jesus today. We started this year out with this little secret and here's the secret. It's really not a secret. It's almost in every book of the Bible. It's this idea, this biblical principle of sowing and reaping and we translated that to plant what you want to grow. If you want to reap or harvest something several months from now six months from now a year two or three years from now you got to plant the seeds now so that you can harvest it later and this is what the parents of these seniors are walking through they're walking through years and years and years and years of investment in their lives to see them have this accomplishment with tears sending them off to their next whatever you know their next season of life what stood up here is is the result of many seeds that were planted. You get to see the harvest. And it's the same thing that's true even in the seniors' lives. The graduates, as they graduated, they they understood that growth is a choice. These seniors made a decision to grow intellectually. They didn't just sit at home and binge Netflix for the past four years and then get some kind of invitation in the mail that they're actually gonna be graduating. No, there was a there was a series of classes they had to go through and tests they needed to take and things they had to show up and they had to learn cognitively these things and be able to express that they knew and they could synthesize this information and because of that they walked across the stage this past weekend and some of them did that really well and so they had fancy cords around their neck and other you know uh other things that people would say about them, and even you got to hear these are. This is a result of growing intellectually, and 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 we know that. That's how that's how life works. That you plant what you want to grow. If you're on autopilot mentally, you don't come to reading Tolstoy or studying physics. If you're on autopilot mentally, you normally just find yourself scrolling for hours and hours, or going down some dark hole in YouTube, finding out you know what happened to the say by the Bell characters or, you know, something like that. Just me, maybe. If you let yourself go physically, you don't find yourself running stadiums or at the local CrossFit at 5 a.m. No, you find yourself buying bigger pants and uh, hitting the snooze button and spending more time on the couch. If you let your diet and nutrition go, you don't Return to reality, snacking on kale and quinoa, I think I said last week. No, you you come to eating some really high-processed food covered in cheese dust normally. That's that's how it happens. And Peter knows this principle, and he's trying to communicate this to a very discouraged church. He's writing to a discouraged church, discouraged, discouraged churches who are facing <clears throat> increased persecution. They're in a strange land with a strange culture. They feel like outsiders at every turn. See, these people, the people he wrote this letter to, this dispersion, this diaspora he calls them, uh, these churches that had spread, were, they didn't leave by choice, they, they left by force. That uh, persecution against Christianity had increased to such a level. Like if the governor of Louisiana tomorrow said, listen, uh, you Christians can stay, but you're going to be killed, so I advise you to leave and you wake up in the next couple of days in some remote town in Kansas or something, and you don't know the area, and you don't know the culture, and you're an outsider. This is how they felt. They were outsiders. They spoke a different language. They didn't grow up from there, and especially in an age where people did not move, you stayed where you were born, 99% of you. They, they felt like outsiders at every turn, and on top of that, they were Christians. Nero at this point, the emperor, was crucifying Christians. He was actually impaling them and covering them with tar and lighting them on fire. And so hence the reason they had to leave their hometown. And Peter knows this. And here's the, here's the key. When life really squeezes you, most of us turn to our worst selves. When the stress is really high, we start snapping when we would normally keep our cool. Don't we? So Peter's trying to reorient this young church reorient them by reminding them of their identity, who they really are, and then warning them about some pitfalls that are in front of them. Let me read the text to you and then just point out a few things. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in the salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold I'm laying a in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious he's talking about Jesus who and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who don't believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do and he locks in on this identity piece But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. He starts this passage, if you caught on to it, with so. And any time a passage starts with so, just like a good parental lecture, as you're telling your kids something. So because of all these things, so, here's the decision that I've made. This is what Peter is doing as he's looking back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he told us a few things, namely an exhortation to really thrive in this dark and terrible world, plagued by sin and disease, a lot of darkness, we're going to have to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our only hope. We talked about that very thing last week. Like in order to accomplish something in front of you, you have to discipline yourselves now. In order for those graduates to walk across the stage, they had to go take the test. They had to show up even this last semester where they didn't really want to very much. Some of them going to other schools had certain tests they had to take to get in they had to do the work so that they could accomplish the goal that seemed far off many years ago. I used the illustration last week of someone running a marathon it's the same thing if you run a marathon you don't go tomorrow and run it you take the next six months and you practice and you run 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 so that you can get there. I had a buddy like this in college Ryan he would work during the summers and uh uh he would work during the summer so he didn't have to work during the school year and he would save up enough during the summer so he could he had a budget of six dollars a day now he had a meal card and other things but he had six dollars a day that he could uh that he could spend because of what he worked last summer and so every time we would go to our little tnt or common ground we'd go out to eat afterwards and ryan would come but ryan would never eat anything he would just drink water and ryan was richer than the rest of us and i was like ryan what what is the deal Why wouldn't you just, he's like, because I'm saving money. I was like, just put it on the credit card, man. That's what I do. The Doc Martens, the Jabo jeans, put it on that credit card. That Discover card. They believe in you, man. Put it on there. But he wouldn't. He would just uh, mooch off our plates and drink water. And Ryan's probably a millionaire now. I don't know. But he was so disciplined, right, to save his money for something he wanted in the future. And this is what even Peter is trying to lock on. Like in order for you to realize your identity in this lost and broken world, you're going to have to say no to some of the things of the world so you can say yes to your identity in Christ. And he's even going to list these things out. In a room this size, there are people on all kinds of stages of spiritual growth. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of you came in here just uh not interested in the thing at all you came to celebrate and both both groups are welcome but this is like the common stages of faith you got that uh, stages of faith ladder in there this is many of us are on this similar journey and these are these different stages we start really with resisting it's not on the screen and then we don't want anything to do with with jesus or with the christian faith and then we move up to the seeking stage where we're Maybe we've accomplished some things in life. There's a spiritual angst, like, I've got to figure this thing out. Is this God, is he real? Is Jesus real? Is the Bible real? Am I made for more of that? Is there a plan for my life? Pushing back against nearly everything, really wrestling with their faith. And then there's a breakthrough, and they respond to the invitation of Jesus. They step across this line of faith. They can spiritually see for the first time. Everything is so new peace and joy they make sense of things and there's an answer for evil and good in the world but then they start in this adjusting stage where they're having to relearn everything they thought they used to know but now the holy spirit used to sin was fun for them but now when they have sin they have guilt and conviction because there's a greater call in their life and so there's this adjustment stage this Spiritual toddlers, maybe, that we would say. And then, then the next step is adolescence. You remember your adolescence, right? That awkward stage when you grew faster than your muscles did and your physical bodies outgrow, like your ability to walk so you trip over nothing and your voice starts cracking. You know, your seventh grade yearbook photo. You know, that that that, that phase, that, that wonderful phase. parents of these graduates you know what this looks like some of their pictures are out there I saw them in that awkward adolescent stage you know the adolescent stage where they think they know everything where they lack discernment but the point is that we wouldn't stay there that would be the point like if my surgeon if I'm about to go into surgery and my doctor's laughing at weird junior high humor, I would be a little nervous because I don't expect him to stay in adolescence. I expect him to grow. But what I have found a lot of the church gets stuck right here in adolescence. They never really grow past it. The next stage would be reproducing. This is where you really shift from being a consumer of all the things to a contributor. Investing Planting in other people's lives what you hope to see grow in them. What some of these prayer mentors have been doing for these graduates. They've been investing and praying and bringing them things. Being kind to them. That's the reproducing stage. To grow spiritually up the ladder here, we have to have spiritual disciplines in our lives. Friends, let me tell you something. This is not really complicated If you don't feel close to God, it's not because of God. It's because you aren't pursuing him. You're not submitting to him. You're not responding to the little light he's given so that he reveals even more lights. It takes action to grow. It's not passive. It takes intentionality. It amazes me how ambitious we can be about nearly everything else in life. But when it comes to growing in our faith, when it comes to growing in the likeness of God and extending his kingdom, we we want to be so passive on those things. We just assume that we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're we're going to have spiritual abs, per se. But you know it doesn't work like that. Listen, I have started a 100 diets in my life. Every kind. I've been on all the, all the diets. Every few years, there's like a new phase of workout. We're going to do South Beach or Tai Bo or keto or you know there's all of them right the weight watchers we're gonna count the the carbs are bad no it's the fat that's bad everything's bad you can't you just eat cardboard you're gonna be fine but this time about two months ago I was like okay enough's enough I can't start another diet I actually need help and so I hired help that would actually and what's required of me so that they can help me is I have to record everything that goes in my mouth. She even says if I lick it, it's gotta go in there. I record every calorie I eat, I send it to them for accountability, and lo and behold, right, you lose weight that way because you take the intentional work to actually do it. Does that make sense? Look at all the work you put in to see the results. The other day, one of Hud's buddies was over at the house, and he's on this soccer team in the same league that we're in. And his soccer team that, uh, that the, other, the other little boy's on, like, went undefeated. And so I was asking him, I was like, well, tell me, tell me about your soccer. He's like, well, you know, we practice five days a week. This is like B-par soccer. This is not like elite. It's like five days a week for B-par soccer? Well, they don't lose a, They didn't lose. You understand the work that you put in, right? You plant what you want to grow. This is Peter's comparison here. Look at verses 1 and 2. He uses this children an- uh, analogy that he started in chapter 1. He's introducing this idea of being obedient children, he actually says. And he's contrasting two very different paths, just like the, the author of Proverbs would. If you go read Proverbs 12, 13, and 14, they, they, the, the author of Proverbs offered these two paths. And he says, listen, my son, to my wisdom. You've got two paths before you. You can choose the path of foolishness. And you can go do what you want to do, and you can just uh, reach for the stars and live in the moment and do your thing, or you can choose the path of wisdom. It starts with the fear of the Lord and walking in his ways. There's two paths offered, and Peter's reminding this young church, and in the same way, the Holy Spirit's reminding all of us in this room that there are two paths in front of us. You can choose to remain childish. Or you can choose to grow up. Look at the word. I think I actually have it on the slide there in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk. I think I underlined it there. By, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted the Lord as good. Growing up. Now I don't want to dog on kids. But think about kids. Graduates today, your parents, they remember when you were very little. Think about kids that they're unstable in their emotions, aren't they? Like if they don't get what they want and they completely throw a fit. They can go from the heights of joy and happiness to the depths of despair in a matter of a few seconds. My kids were young and they didn't, they didn't get what they wanted or their mom left the room they would lose their minds. I mean, you would literally think that they witnessed me murdering the, the the dog or something. They, they would lose their minds. And yet, you gave them a popsicle, and they're happy again. In the next moment, and maybe your kids did. My kids did. They did that like I'm not sure if they're crying or happy kind of thing. They were kind of. They were trying to decide. I'm still mad that mom's not here, but this popsicle looks great, right? That kind of kids are unstable in their emotions one extreme to the other and many christians are like that they can be on top of the world spiritually one moment overflowing with this liquid love of god and the slightest thing financial trouble someone's offended at them relational break breakdown spiritual setback and they just they don't know what to do children can be insecure Kids need reassurance all the time that their parents care about them and they're not going anywhere. I was talking to Claire yesterday about this one time when we, when we moved into our house where we still currently live uh, 12 years ago. We, you know that little room that's built off the garage that you're supposed to, I guess, supposed to be like a little work room. I made that my office. I like, you know, you put an air duct in that thing, made it my office. But you had to go in, in the garage and then into that room. Well, Ashley's away doing something, and I've got the kids, and they're all kind of napping. So I'm like, I'm going to go in my office and actually work some. And I go to my office and work, and I'm in there about an hour. And I faintly hear something in the house. I was like, well, I didn't tell anyone they were sleeping. I'm going to go check. And I walk in the room, and there is Claire and Ellie huddled in the kitchen. And as soon as I walk in, they lose their minds. They were so worried that I had just left them for good forever. But I was just right there. Kids need reassurance that we're not going to go anywhere. They, they're unstable in their emotions. All of my kids had the blanket. you remember the blanket? Maybe your kids didn't do that. I literally thought they were going to walk across the stage when they graduated with the blanket. They would not go anywhere without it. If you left it in Dallas on a trip, you better go back to Dallas. It is that, I'm not kidding, it is that important. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is why Peter will continue this point. Don't stay childish. You've got to grow up. Why is this so important? Because living in a harsh world requires grown-up hope. Not warm fuzzies or constant stream of signs and wonders. Needing warm fuzzies and constant signs is... Uh, Streams of of miracles and signs and wonders is not a sign of spiritual maturity, but a spiritual immaturity. You need a grown up, unwavering faith built on the rock solid hope of the empty tomb. We are the resurrection people, friends. That's who we are. And seniors, if you hear anything else from me, learn to fix your hope on Jesus. Things aren't going to go the right way sometimes, and people are going to disappoint you, and you're going to disappoint yourself. The world's changing rapidly. Who knows what tomorrow holds? We don't know. But we know God is in control of everything. There's this hinge verse here in verse 2. Look at it with me. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. See, verse 1 has all the childish things. And then he compares all the childish things. The, he mentions them. As you grow up, you got to get rid of some things. You got to get rid of the pacifier. When Ashley and I were dating, we, I had this really cool uh, pineapple couch, not, not like SpongeBob pineapple, like what would have been in a doctor's office in the seventies, right? It had little, you know, and it had had it had a, it had had a life of its own. That uh, someone donated it to me as a little, you know, youth intern. And I love that couch. And, uh, and, you know, it was just, I love the pineapple couch. And when I got married and got my house, Ashley wouldn't let me bring the pineapple couch. She said no to the pineapple couch. She really did. Isn't this a crazy story? And, I mean, who knows? You know, I had several roommates. That, that, that couch was nasty. But I loved it. It was like, you know, it was the pineapple couch. And lo and behold, you know, I had a little, we sang a Sarah McLaughlin song and got rid of the couch. And um, in the arms of the angels, the couch went. And um, uh, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> no kidding, uh, several years, fast forward, I am at uh, First Baptist Oil City. Lydia's getting married to GT, and I, they're in the youth room. I walk in there, there's the pineapple couch. <laughs> I'm telling you, that thing won't die. Someone saw some intrinsic value in that couch, and it lived. Isn't that amazing? The angels took care of that couch. The the whole point is, as you grow up, stupid illustration, as you grow up, you get rid of the other parts of your life because you mature. Not many of you adults came in here like, you know, you know, sucking on a squeeze tube of applesauce. Right? Because we grow up. And this is what Peter is saying. He puts before them. Listen, church, you got to decide. You, there's time to grow up. And this is, he says, here's the things i got to get rid of. And he says it with a strong language. I wish you had time to really go into this. We, we don't have. He says, rid yourselves, maybe your translation says, so put away all malice. That's your evil intent. Like, like you really, you're, you're going to cheer for them publicly, but you really want them to fail. Put away the malice and the deceit. This is not telling the whole truth, telling the truth but not being truthful. Normally, just enough truth to make you look good. You got to get rid of the deceit. You got to get rid of the hypocrisy. He says hypocrisy—that's just acting two-faced. That you're, you know, you 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 turn on the face that whoever you're with wants to see. We shouldn't live like that. We should be authentic. We should be truthful. Don't, the, get rid of the hypocrisy. We can The envy, envy's desiring what other people's ha, what other people have more than that. It's just this. You're not content with your place. You're always thinking, if I just got this other thing, then my life would be so much better. You got to get rid of that, Peter says. Oh, the slander. Slander is when we actually destroy other people's reputations. And we're so good at this in the church because we'll be like, oh, have you met Jason? And you're like, oh, I love Jason. And then Jason walks away, and then you say something bad about Jason. Except, you know, Jason kind of cries all the time. You know, that kind of thing. This is, this, this is what slander actually is. where <laughs> Slander is when you when you say the right thing but then you start a whisper campaign to tear them down. That's slander. And Peter says, listen, listen, little church, I love you guys. You got to put away the childish things. Now, let me just say this this list of things is not so foreign to even understand like we get this our entire world lives like this if you could put these things on your resume and they would actually might get you the job in some industries and peter says no 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 i know the world lives like that i know i know i know where you're at in, in asia minor i know these little countries by Finney. I, I know they live like that but you can't live like that you got to get rid of those things. The reason this list is here is too, this would have been the normal way of the world and the normal way of life for them before coming to Christ. This was what they did. And it's still so prevalent in the church today. This is what I said I think most of us get stuck in adolescence. We come to Christ and we get... You know, we get that ticket to heaven one day, we think, and we think, man, this is going to be just amazing. And we get joy and forgiveness and peace. But we never want to grow. We never want to repent. We never want to confess. We never want to speak hard truths to each other. We we certainly don't want anyone to speak hard truths to us. And so we just say no to growth. And so we look like adults. I mean, we might have bank accounts like adults, but we're still acting like the fifth or sixth grader. We just, we refuse to grow. And I love how Peter says this. Peter says, you got to get rid of those stuff, but don't just get rid of that stuff. Replace that intrinsic desire you used to have to slander and to be a hypocrite and deceit and malice. Replace that with a greater desire. Because if I tell you not to do something, It's the first thing you're going to want to go do. Who can I slander around here, right? But Peter says, no, we've got to replace it with a greater desire. Look at it in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The New American Standard says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. This is that word, lagos. It was used of Jesus by John in his gospel in chapter one. In the beginning was the word was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. This is that word. Like newborn babes, we should long for the logos. The pure spiritual milk. This word here, maybe in your translation, this long for it is this word crave. It's a beautiful word in the New Testament. It means consistent, reoccurring, relentless craving for something. I think this is the hinge verse for the rest of the book. He says we should crave the logos. We should crave the word of God that points us to the person of Jesus. This is what he's saying. This word, if you look at the etymology of the word, Paul used this word seven times in the New Testament, and it ranges From a description, a a husband's strong desire for his wife after he's been away for many months. It's a starving man's desire for food. It's a Christian parent's desire for their child who's walking in sin to return to the truth. That's the craving. It's the, the grief of a person who longs to have one more conversation with someone who's passed. Maybe you identify with that kind of craving. It's these intense words for longing. So what Peter is saying, replace that deeply embedded brokenness with a deeply rooted craving or longing for the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. Why would we crave the Word of God? Not for the Word's sake, because it's just the Word illuminated by the Holy Spirit that shows us who God is. This is how we walk with God. This is how we communicate in relationship. This is his words to us. The word cuts through the noise and it tells us what's true. It brings life. Friends, walking with Jesus changes everything. It's a weekly practice for me to go to the word, so discouraged so apathetic, so disillusioned, and this is your pastor, so defeated. And I sit on that couch, and I open the word of God. This happens nearly every week that I'm so discouraged, and I sit and spend time with Jesus, and just the sight of him, knowing his love for me and care for me, my spirits are lifted, my eyes are up, my chin is up, my head is up. This is what walking with God does. This is why most of us stay in this adolescent stage because we don't, we don't grow. We don't put in the time to actually walk with him. Just this week, just Saturday morning, yesterday morning, I'm in PJs going over my notes. I'm reading through this and I'm reading the entire book of 1 Peter. And I feel like you know, I'm in a supernatural cloud in PJs. I am just, Just to know God and to walk with Him and His presence to be with you, it literally changes everything. This is what Peter's saying. We've got to long or crave like a newborn babe does for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Job says, I've treasured your words in my mouth more than necessary food. Jeremiah says, your word was so sweet and I ate it. Psalm 119, look at what the psalmist says, just real quickly. Look at all the beautiful things it says about the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, and I underline, I think, on here, restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord, this is, again, the Word of God, is sure, and it makes wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord, they're right. If you're trying to choose between what's right and what's not right, this is how you know, and it brings rejoicing to the heart, and the commandments of the Lord are pure, and they enlighten the eyes. Look at the adjectives that the psalmist just used, that the word of God is perfect and sure and right and clean and true and better than gold, all kinds of gold, sweeter than honey. And in hearing the word of God, we're warned and we find great reward. Psalms 19 actually starts off with saying, man, look at the heavens. They declare the glory of God. And you can look at the heavens and the stars and think about this earth floating in the middle of our universe and how it rotates it's just amazing to think that this is even a thing and then you look at creation and god says i want you to look at that that just reflects my beauty look at the creation look at the birds sing and the and the waterfalls and the rainbows every time you see it that's what you remember i'm the one that i thought all this up i'm the one that created this you should have seen it before the fall and then psalms 19 moves into the word of god Like creation just pointed towards me, the word of God introduces us to him. God's revelation of himself in the word is greater than God's revelation of himself in the world. This is how we know him. And friends, all the promises of God don't matter in your life unless you learn to crave it, Peter says you got to crave the word. He gives this analogy of a newborn baby. Instinctively, when a newborn arrives in the world just minutes old, they clean the baby up just a little bit, put some kind of weird gunk in the, in the eyes, and they set that baby on mom's chest. And the baby already starts pucking his or her little lips, and he, they want the milk. Instinctively, they crave the milk. No Yelp reviews needed. No Zagat ratings. No five-star reviews. They just want the milk. And I imagine the diaper and delivery nurse coming over to that little baby who's just like wants mom's milk. It's like, hey, little baby, I've got some sushi for you. Hey, little baby, I've, I've got fajitas from Uncle Julio's with that garlic butter they put all over it. Hey, well, I've got the, I've got the fatty meat from Hard Eight. I got a smoked brisket from Dave's house. Baby, not interested. Oh, baby, wait until you find carbs. Oh, my goodness. Carbs with syrup on top of it. Not interested. The baby wants the milk. The pure, unadulterated milk of God's word, Peter says. It's the nourishment that comes from the word. And the result of that nourishment is we grow up. Like newborn babes. Have you ever thought about it? It's amazing the design of the human body that a baby would even crave mom's milk. And that's the only thing the baby actually needs to survive. This dietitian that I've hired, she wants me to have certain of all kinds of things. The baby just needs mom's milk. And I'm not an expert on breast milk. And to be honest, I'm a little uncomfortable even talking about it, but Pe- but Peter brings it up, okay? The nutrient in breast milk, which was hard for me even to look up without um, the accountability software uh, catching me. Um, I got a few calls. I had to warn them ahead of time. Hey, I'm fixing Google what's in the ingredients in breast milk. So just, just so you know, covenant eyes, alert, alert, alert. The nutrients in breast milk gives the infant everything it needs. It's like liquid gold. It gives the baby everything it needs. And this is why Peter's using this illustration. He is saying the word of God. Knowing God through his word is everything we need in the life of the Christian. Not reading it for reading it's sake or memorizing it. The the Pharisees had the whole Bible memorized and, and they missed Jesus. It's knowing Jesus through the word. Submitting to the word. Joyfully living a life of obedience to the word of God. I read a story this past week in researching this about a lady who was doing this work with uh, teenage moms that are living in extreme poverty and out of ignorance. The baby would cry and want the milk, but they didn't, they didn't have enough and they didn't know what to give it. And so they would put cola or soda in the baby's bottle or alcohol in the baby's bottle, anything just to make the baby shut up. But it didn't help the baby. It made them deathly ill. Now, church, this is what we do. Then let's not act holier than thou in here. This is what we do. Our soul longs to walk with God, to be known by God, for our identity to be reaffirmed by God. This is why we were made. We were made in his image and in his likeness. And our souls long for it. And we try to fill it with everything else. I'm just going to get a new truck. Not just a new truck, a jacked up truck. And not hey, not just the dudes, you girls. I want new countertops. Every three years, those countertops look fine. Yeah, but the Instagram account that I follow, she has the most gorgeous countertops. We fill our soul with all of this other stuff, and it makes us deathly ill spiritually. We need the milk to grow that unsettled feeling, friends, you feel in your heart. It's to know and be known by God. That peace that you long for, that joy that you're reaching for. In verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen, and precious, and then he says, you yourselves are like living stones. He's talking about the church. You yourselves are like living stones stacked on top of one another, being built up as this spiritual house so all the, all the world around it can see, oh, these are the people of God. And the people of God are people that are of malice and slander and, and gossip and, and, and complaining. No, no, no that's, no, that's not the people of God. That's their old way of life. The people of God are people of love and joy and peace and kindness and patience. And we build our lives on one another, the whole the whole world. This this is why church is a big deal, friends. I don't I don't beg you to come because I feel better that you're here. No, because I know your soul and your life needs it. You need the community of God. And even if you're so superhero you don't need it, you know who does need it? The lost world needs it. They need to see you stacked, one on top of another, as Peter says here as a spiritual house. Well, what if they offended me? What if I got hurt? You're going to get hurt. You're going to be offended. But with the same forgiveness that God forgave you, you can forgive them. With the same grace that he extended to you, you can extend to them. With the same mercy that he withheld his wrath from you, you can withhold your wrath from them. Do you see it? Living stones built. as He comes in here, he talks about the chief cornerstone. I got to finish here. Chief cornerstone. I preached on this passage about Three months ago, you can go, I did the whole priesthood bit. We we don't have time to go through that. Seniors, let me talk to you real quick. Graduates, not seniors anymore, you're graduates. Establish your foundation on Jesus Christ. It calls him here the chief cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone was the first stone that you would set, and it's where you would, it would be plumb and it would be level, And it's how you built a structure. Everything would start here and then it would be built on this stone. This is how you built a house that would stand, that was true. And this is what Peter's saying. We've got to build our lives, these spiritual stones. Our lives got to be built on the foundation of Jesus. This is your new identity, he says. He would go and remind them in verse nine that they're a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people's own possessions. But it starts with your life being built on Jesus. This is your identity. I want to end with this, talking about this identity just for a few minutes. Identity simply defined as your self-definition of who you are. I like Clayton King's definition. I put it on the screen. Identity is what the most important person or people in your life think about you. Who is that for you? The most important person or people. See, most of us live our whole life plugged with this question. Am I enough? And we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and to everyone else. Am I man enough? Am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I pretty enough, skinny enough? Am I good enough? And the point of every advertisement that you see on television is that you're not good enough. You're not a good enough Mom, unless you get the new vacuum, or a good enough husband, unless you buy her the right jewelry. You're not a good enough person, unless you take the cruise. You're not good enough. But you could be good enough, the commercial says, if you just had this. We hear it all day, every day. We're just not enough. So when she cheats, it's because you weren't good enough husband or good enough man. And when he looks at porn, it's because you you weren't wife enough. And when the kids ruin their lives, it's because you didn't parent well enough. And even if you did enough right now, we live with the fear that one day we won't be able to do enough. Michael Jordan was one of the greatest basketball players of all time, this generation. And there's junior high kids growing up right now that doesn't they don't even know he played basketball. They just think that their shoes that they wear. You can just forget like, like that. One day he'll be surpassed and he'll be forgotten. Here's what I'm saying. You could kill it. You could be the best of the best of the best in every arena you can imagine. And yet still you're going to have this aching thing in your heart. Am I enough? For our graduates, when you go to school, am I going to be smart enough? Am I be mean, liked enough, accepted enough? Then throw Instagram and Facebook on top of that, that's literally built around reminding you that you're not enough. Everyone postures and curates this fake life. And then, even, it's not even just that you're trying to get the best moment of your day, you're going to put a filter over it that makes your eyes look bigger and your, rose look, and, your rose, and your cheeks look rosy. Or you can look like a cat. You can do either one of those, you know? <laughs> Whatever. Everybody puts up this fake life, design the screen. Hey, you're okay, but I'm more okay than you're okay. And then you wonder, am I enough? And you look at that Instagram post with these, you know, beautiful day and green lawn. And the kids are out there and they're doing sidewalk chalk, but not like my kids did sidewalk. They're like, they're like Picasso on the ground. They're like, how, how did they draw that with the thing? But you're not even looking at the kids or the sidewalk, you're looking at the new car in the back of the of the thing, and they're like, Man, why is her life so much better than mine? I'm not enough. And the enemy comes in and whispers, he's like, You're not enough. You need more stuff, you need to strive more, you need to work harder, you need to go get the surgery. You gotta do all the things so that you'll convince yourself that you're enough. The American College Health Association noted the rising anxieties in this generation of students entering college recent. They say over 75% of them will have gone to see someone about their anxiety and it's made exponentially worth by social media. And the primary message that these kids, these young adults are now receiving is that they better be the best at everything or they're not going to make it. Social media and Instagram, everyone's creating this fake best version of themselves, compete with everyone else's fake best version, and they're afraid to be authentic and reveal their inadequacies and their insecurities and it all this piles up and all this anxiety. Friends, let me end here. The good news this morning that Peter's reminding you, is that you'll never be enough on your own. But Jesus is enough for everything. Peter tells us we can stop this frantic race to the top because Jesus is our foundation. We have this new identity. In verse 9, you're this chosen race. He says, God chose you to be in his family. You're a royal priesthood. Your people is his own possession. You're the chosen of the chosen of the chosen. You're a valued possession. Jesus purses you with his own very life, his own blood. The king of kings has set his affection on you. He's got a plan for your life. Friend, what more do you need to do to be enough? You're not enough because you're more remarkable than someone else or because you got the top or you're better or stronger, prettier, but because of the one who loves you, who stands beside you. Who launches you, commissions you into service? Listen, you graduates, you will never win enough to feel like you're enough. And the good news is you don't need to. Jesus won for you, He values you and promises that He has a plan to use you for good. Let that be enough. Let me close with Peter's last warning here. The band can come up, we're about to be done. Peter says in verse 7 So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For those who believe, it's the cornerstone. The whole life is built on it. You get the true building, you build your life on it. But those that reject it, it will be a rock of offense. This is the new identity offered to you in Jesus as the cornerstone. He's ready for all of you who would receive him, but if you don't receive him, this would be, pastorally would be a mistake if I didn't remind you. If you don't receive him, that cornerstone turns into the rock that crushes you. C.S. Lewis says there's only two categories of people those who become insanely happy in Jesus and those who find Jesus to be their worst enemy. Jesus is inviting all who would come to him as Savior and Lord to make him the chief cornerstone of their life. It's amazing. What an invitation to become insanely happy in Jesus to UCS Lewis's words. But to those in this very room who reject him, he warns that all of life will be broken, out of sync, And your eternity will be spent separated from a God who loves you. But you don't have to be that. He's inviting you even today to come to him. Let me pray for us. If you would just posture your mind and heart just a minute. Would you just talk to God? I don't know your story. So many visitors today. I don't know where you came from. I don't know your faith journey. I do know that God has a plan for your life, though. And maybe you've been in that resisting stage or questioning stage. And today is the day that you move from seeking to responding. This doesn't mean you're joining our church. It just means you're saying yes to Jesus. And you don't have to have all your questions yes to say yes to say answered to say yes to him. That's what faith is. Lord, everything that I know about me, I'm entrusting to everything I know about you. Through his death and resurrection, he offers us new life. Will you accept it today? Let me pray for us. God, I love you. I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you for our graduates. I thank you for our moms. But Lord, again, what a tragedy it would be for all of us to gather here and not to encounter a God who loves us so incredibly much. that you took it upon yourself to come to this earth and live a perfect life and die on a cruel cross, betrayed and rejected by men. All the while, your word says that it was because of the joy that was said before you that you endured that cross. And that joy is many of the men and women in this very room. And Lord, our Holy Spirit, would you do what you need to in their hearts to push them, to nudge them, just that other little step that they would say yes to you May this be the day of salvation. May this be the day that we say yes to growing up, that we say yes to maturity, that we say no, we rid our things of the old way of life. And we say yes to you. Lord, do what you need to do today in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to sing in just a moment. I just want you to do business with God. Our prayer team's going to be in the back. I'll be in the back. I just want you to talk to God. Whatever he puts on your heart, just do that thing. Confess sin if you need to. Pray with a spouse or a kid if you need to. Prayer team would love to pray. Our prayer team, this this makes their week, our prayer team. They just want to pray with you. So if you've got something you want to just pray with them about, they'll be in the back. You do what the Lord puts on your heart. We'll sing in just a minute, and then we'll be dismissed.